What's going on, everybody? And thank you so much for coming back to my channel. Um, I know it's been a little bit, but uh, I am super excited today to have uh, Murderbot author Martha Wells on with me. But uh, first of all, just Martha, how are we doing today? Uh, pretty good, actually. It's been a pretty productive day so far. So that awesome. really makes me happy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now productive as far as writing or productive just like I feel like I've got some stuff done today around the house. <laughs> well, I did get some writing done this morning. I was mostly I've been we've been having a whole big thing. We I had a car accident uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh from it was hit behind from behind at a stoplight and our car is still well it's more than a couple of weeks now. Our car is still being repaired so I've been dealing with the insurance company and yesterday was a stressful insurance company day kind of <laughs> And so I woke up early and just like, okay, I'm just going to start writing. And so I did get um, um, quite a bit done this morning, quite a bit for me. I don't, I'm not a super fast writer. So that makes me feel better about the whole rest of the day that, um, you know, I can take time to get ready, get, get how, clean the house and do all these other things. So. I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, it's so funny. I feel like most fender benders happen at stoplights. <laughs> yeah. Every time I've been, this is a college town. And every time I've been in an accident, it's because someone has hit me from behind while I'm at a stoplight. And yeah, uh, so the whole back end of the car was just mushed. Um, I've had it happen twice in like a matter of a year. Uh, one was because uh, the, the light turned green. The person in front of me went and then stopped. And so I stopped. The person behind me just, you know, right into it. And then another one, literally the light was still red and a girl came up behind me and just, and just tapped. So I was like, Oh, it's not too bad. And she said, Oh my gosh, my foot slipped off the brake. And the next thing you know, we're riding alongside her and she's just, oh, <laughs> yeah. you just never know. People, people are crazy, <laughs> but I can imagine around a college town, that probably happens quite frequently. Yeah, and it's just, this is just a year, a year and a half almost now for distractions. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, I kind of want to start off our chat, um, kind of how I, I normally do. I just want to ask you, you know, tell me, tell me about yourself. Tell me about, you know, life, how you got into writing and then kind of how you got to where you are today. Okay. Um, I've been a published writer since 1993. Um, I, I don't remember how I wanted to start, why I wanted to start writing. I just, our house always had a lot of books in it and we always went to the library a lot. And um, I kind of always wanted to be, I think possibly because I read um, Irma Bombeck. My mother liked those books. So I read them when I was a little kid and she was a humor writer. She did a call. She was a newspaper columnist and she did kind of really funny columns about family life and, and, the suburbs, which were kind of a new thing at the time. It was that long ago. And um, she wrote about being um, a writer. And that was kind of my first thing that real people who actually like lived in houses and had families and all that kind of stuff could be writers. Women could be writers. Um, and that the people who wrote the books, I had a cousin tell me that all books were ghost written. So yeah, when you're a kid, that doesn't, you're just like, Okay. <laughs> you people did it. Sometimes you see it on TV, people writing, you know, but you know, you're not sure what that means. But the fact that this real person and um I think I was drawn to her books because I my sister is nine years older than me, so I was alone a lot at home. And uh the fact that she wrote about, you know, fairly big families with like four or five kids and going on trips and and it's really funny, really kind of funny and sarcastic and everything, but also just kind of um 
really nice to read. So I think that's maybe one of the influences. But I always like, I loved, um, again, this is, I'm, I'm dating myself so badly. But back then we had like five, there was no cable. <laughs> we had five channels on the TV, broadcast channels. And, um, and there was not much on, but there was one independent station that would show things like Godzilla movies and Irwin Allen stuff like Land of the Giants, uh, which I will defend as a really great show. And, you know, the, the science fictional submarine and, and I can't remember what that was called and, um, and a bunch of others. So I really, and lost in space. And so I was just, just into science fiction and fantasy. And I read um, everything I could find at the library because our library, the library we went to uh, was a pretty big one. And it had the children's section right next to the science fiction section. So it had these paperbacks with really lur the really lurid pulp covers you don't see very much of anymore. Uh, that as a kid, it's like, oh, this is exciting. So um, I read a lot of books that were probably too old for me, but um, that got me into science fiction and fantasy. So, and I started writing um, more seriously in college as opposed to little kid writing stories about monsters kind of stuff. And I went to a writer's workshop with Stephen Gould um, while I was still a student. And then afterwards I started getting into writer's workshops that uh, writers were doing around where I lived in Texas, in Austin and Houston, and um, just kept working on it until I sold my first novel, The Element of Fire, um, like about two years before it came out in 1993. And I just kind of been plugging away since then. I've had day jobs most of that time up until um, 2006 or so, I think. Yeah, where I finally, um, I had kind of a, I did a lot of software work uh, first for the university and then later for a private company doing databases and uh, web stuff, early web stuff. And then, um, working with user interfaces, creating user interfaces and programming and things like that. And so that's kind of where a lot of the influence for uh, Murderbot came from. A lot of people think I, I studied AI or something and I did not. <laughs> I studied like software and trying to get humans to use the software correctly and maybe download it and um, not try to and teach people, teaching people how to do things like read a PDF. It's like first download Acrobat. Um, oh gosh! <laughs> I mean, like I'm talking from the beginning. It's like I'm trying to use your software to read a PDF. Our software is not meant to use PDFs. It works with HTML online. Um, so that kind of thing. So um, uh, that's where a lot of my experience came from. And um, I had kind of a toxic work environment, um, and it, with the private company, and it was just kind of getting worse and worse. And I was getting to the point where I had book contracts. I was writing, I think I was, yeah, I was still writing, I think, the, the Ilrian books at that time, the, the Ilrian trilogy. And it was getting to the point where I would come home from work and it would take a few hours to calm down enough to actually be able to write. And it's like, oh, that gosh. was sustainable. And then um, a friend of mine passed away and I kind of had a life is too short moment. And I quit and then went and started writing full time. And of course, I immediately had a career crash right after that and wasn't able to sell any books for a couple of years, um, which was weird because there was one like 2006 or 2007. I think I had more things come out. I had like a 
a media tie-in for Stargate Atlantis. I had the last book of the Ilrian trilogy come out. I had some short story fiction and everything. And then, but my career was actually going downhill. That's that's the weird thing about author career crashes. A friend of mine described it as um, you keep showing up to work, but they don't want you there anymore. And they've actually fired you, but you don't know. So you just keep showing up. And then finally you realize they're not paying you anymore. And, uh, and, you, and you get the message. But um, I got a new agent and she sold uh, The Cloud Roads, which was the first book in the Books of the Rexera series. And that kind of started a slow climb back into um, being uh, a working a, a writer who's actually able to support myself a little bit. Um, and then wrote Murderbot and that kind of took off real big, which is <laughs> not what I was expecting at this point in my career. <laughs> Yeah, but I say it, it took off just just a wee bit, right? <laughs> really, really shocking. I've never had probably my most popular book before this was in 1998, which was The Death of the Necromancer, which did really well and uh, was up for a Nebula Award for Best Novel. But everything, the Raxura books did well, but they did well over a long time. They didn't, they kind of, it was a very slow build. And, um, and I was very content with that, especially by the time the fourth or fifth one had come out. And I'd done a Star Wars novel um, also. So I had kind of, it was kind of a slow build. And I thought, well, this is good. This is, this is, this is, you know, I can, um, you know, make enough money to help, you know, to be uh, not a drag on my family and um, things like that. But um having a book take off and I'm, I never expected to be on the Yuga ballot. I never expected to be on the Nebula ballot again, a ballot again. I never expected, certainly never considered the fact that it might, I might have a book that would be a, a New York times bestseller. So it's all just been really weird and strange for me. <laughs> so I'm curious um, about a few things. So, you know, you had that kind of a dip when you decided to go full time. Did you ever think like, okay, maybe this isn't for me. I'm going to move on to something else. Or were you just like, I'm determined to get back to where I was. Actually, after I finished writing the cloud roads and also during that time and, and the serpent sea, which was the second book in the series. And I wrote Emily in the hollow world, which was a, a, a kind of young YA novel I did. And, um, my agent was taking around the cloud roads and Emily at this time. And it, after about two years of the cloud roads meeting every publisher, <laughs> you know, there was out there and being rejected. I was like this, it's time to give it up. And I was kind of looking into what I was going to do next and trying to figure that out. And also um, I couldn't afford to go to conventions out of state, but I was, you know, I would go to the one, you know, Armadillo con in Austin and, um, DFW con and things like that, you know, to hang out with my friends. And also I was still on programming. I'm like, I can't do that anymore. So I was kind of canceling convention appearances right when the cloud road sold. Oh. So to, to nightshade books. So that was, it was kind of like, Oh, and, you know, trying to get everything restarted. Um, and also it was basically like starting over because two years in publishing is enough time for most people to forget you unless you've had a big hit. Uh, most people are just going to, you know, it was like starting over again as a new author. I was mm -hmm. even uh, referred to as a, um, a promising newcomer. <laughs> Some things, and it was like, oh man, you know, and this was after nine books 
and uh, a Nebula nomination. <laughs> so yeah, that's crazy. Then, yeah. Did you ever think about like coming up with like a different name? Like when you made your comeback, you know, like come back, come back, come back as somebody else as a debut author. <laughs> A lot of people have to do that. And that has to do mostly with the way bookstores do their ordering, chain bookstores do their ordering, because they'll order less of the of, of your current book. They'll order less of it than the previous book sold. So you can get into this downward spiral where, oh. you know, they're either not ordering it at all or they're ordering so few copies. The book has no chance to 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 be found by anybody. Um and I was so I was prepared. Usually what happens is when a publisher wants to do the book, they'll look at that and then suggest to you that you change your name or, or do a different name or something like that. That's mostly how that happens. I'm sure there's different ways people choose to do it themselves, too. So I was kind of prepared for that, but I kind of didn't want to because mm -hmm. um, I did have, you know, a tiny little fan base and I wanted to keep them and let them know I was doing new books. I gotcha. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always curious about that because you you don't you don't see it very often. I mean, you sometimes see authors you know writing under pen names, um, but you don't you don't see it a ton. But I, I I had to assume like you know if there's maybe like a lull for a few years and you know, you kind of you kind of do hit that rough patch where you know you're you're just constantly querying and nothing's happening. You're like, okay, let's do a name change. Let's change it up. You change something up and, and and change the course of or the or the path that you're going to go on. So I was just curious if, if you had had that thought. <laughs> I think I did, but um, you know, I was I was kind of not ready to do that, and also I didn't I wasn't sure how much my previous sales were affecting. And actually, I got my new agent because she had read the Death of the Necromancer. So that's one reason why she wanted to look at the book and everything. So um, sometimes it helps to uh, kind of uh, keep being identified with your previous work. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and as I keep thinking through my through my mind about this whole like if you know it, had you decided not to continue on the path that like we wouldn't have all of these books. It, it's so yeah. it's like baffling. So you know to any anybody any writer that is watching this right now who is like I don't know if I want to do this more, keep going <laughs> because you just never know. Yeah, basically, um, if you still want to write and you still want to do it, some people just really hit a wall where they can't emotionally take the rejection and it is really hard at times really hard and again i was at the point where i was getting ready to kind of uh, shut it down and go on with some other part of my life but yeah if you still love it and you still want to keep doing it then you know keep trying yeah i see i i I've, i've put myself through a couple of sales jobs i was uh i was in marketing and then i was in real estate and so i've really gotten used to the word no so I figure if, if I finally do decide to sit down and write a book, I'm like, okay, I, I got this. We're good. <laughs> yeah. Some people have really unrealistic expectations and um, it's, it's rough and it takes like a combination of uh, building your craft and experience and um, luck and um, dedication to just really keep going. Yeah. And it's like, there's not, I don't think there's any, um, um, it's a shame when people quit, but I think that you kind of have to practice self-care and worry about what's best for your health and everything and not push mm. yourself 
to do something that is going to hurt you or that you, you know, you don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you, do you recommend, you know, you said you went through some workshops. Do you recommend those for, for, you know, up and coming writers? Uh, do, do you, do you think they're, I wouldn't say a necessity, but do you think it really helps the craft? Um, it helped me. Um, the ones I was doing were put on by writers in the local area who, um, um, they weren't, you didn't have to pay, you know, kind of thing. They were free. And it was mostly just, you know, a group of local writers who were, um, um, you know, wanting to workshop their own work and also willing to have new people come in and, and help them a little bit. Um, some people aren't, some people don't have good workshop experiences and they don't, it doesn't help them. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it does things like you get used to, it kind of teaches you how to revise and how to take a uh, critique because some, especially when you're um, you're writing a novel and you let people read parts of it, they'll see problems in one area and say, well, this chapter didn't work. And actually the problem with that chapter is that the three chapters earlier where that scene was set up, that was inadequate. And that's the problem. The problem is not where you're, where they're pointing at it. The problem is somewhere else. So mm -hmm. kind of like making yourself aware of things like that and kind of and, you know, kind of just kind of learning and, you know, being able to ask other writers questions and stuff. Uh, but it doesn't, but it's sort of like everyone's an individual and everyone learns differently. So you kind of have to figure out the best way for you to learn, you know, learn your craft. There's a workshop that in, when, it, when there's not a global spanning pandemic, ArmadilloCon has a pay workshop, which uh, is an all day thing on Friday of the convention and it comes with convention membership and you have uh, usually like 10 or 12 writers who are the teachers who all, and there's some seminars during the day and then everyone submits a story and you're broken up into groups of like four or five students with uh, usually two writers as the teachers and you'll workshop your story. That's a really good one. And that's one that you can kind of get into. It's, it's, I think it's like 50 bucks or 60. It's not very expensive. People, when a lot of people, when they talk about science fiction fantasy workshops, they're thinking of Clarion, which is a multi day thing where you have to fly there and stay and, you know, and, and it's very intensive. And I, I've seen people talk about, well, if you, can, if you don't do Clarion, then you can't be published or whatever. And it's like, that is such utter BS. There's nothing you have to do. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time. It's like when I started, people were saying BS things like, um, well, you have to learn Latin before you can become a writer. And it was like, it's like, okay, that's so ridiculous. I don't even know where you would get that, but people are going to say, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. And really about the only thing you have to do is write and finish things. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, if you do have money to, to spend on it, there's things like um, kind of writing conventions that are for all genres that will you they're more expensive and you can do things like get these seminars and also pitch to agents or editors and that's a whole other thing i think science fiction fantasy conventions it's like for the price of the membership you can go to all the panels and you can ask questions and hear and hear people talk about writing and publishing and everything and um um you know i did the science fiction convention route i never went as a um as an aspiring writer to one of the actual, you know, pay writing conventions, but there's all kinds of things you can do. And there's a lot of online workshops 
and just articles and things people write about writing online that you can do. So it's like everybody's path is different. So again, it's like finishing stuff. The being, writing and finishing is the big important thing. Mm. Yeah. See, I, I've always wanted to do like a, a writer's retreat, like go to like a lake house and just have no distractions, phones off, just have, you know, whatever you're going to be working on, no internet, anything, and just, just write. And I think, I think I'm going to tell my wife, I was like, for my birthday in June, I want like three days where I just go to the lake with my computer, you know, no internet. And I just, and just type for three days and just see what happens. Cause I just, I have so many distractions, like working from yeah. home, having a 10 month old, also writing a blog and everything, you know, I just feel like if, if I just have nothing else, you know, maybe, maybe some books to read, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Cause I, I feel like the only, you know, one way to become a better author is to read a lot. So, uh, and you kind of can figure out your craft from that too. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was like, if I can just not have distractions and just look at a body of water, maybe, maybe I can get some writing done. <laughs> yeah. I went to a writer's retreat once and it was awesome. <laughs> it was, it was really fun. It was kind of like working in a really cool office. It's like you'd be in your room and you'd be, you. I was actually working on the copy edit for network effect. So I'd be doing that and then go downstairs and have lunch and talk to people that were also having lunch. And then, you know, in the evening people would do stuff and yeah, it was so much fun. Um, but it was not like a work. Nobody was like, you could, um, they said something at the beginning, I think that you could have, you could read your work or have other talk to it about other people. There was nothing, there was no restriction on what you could, do or anything but um i don't think anybody did <laughs> everyone was just like doing their own thing happy <laughs> i gotcha um so so tell me uh how has your writing process changed since the beginning to now or has it stayed the same do you plot everything out do you you know was Murderbot like a fly by the seat of your pants type thing and then it just expanded into this long series so tell me about that um, I don't do a lot of plotting out in advance. I never have. Um, outlining doesn't usually work for me. When I've done media tie-ins, the Stargate Atlantis and the, um, the Star Wars, you have to submit an outline first. The Stargate Atlantis, they didn't really care about the outline. That was just kind of something that they, I guess other publishers did it, so they did it too. I don't know. They weren't really worried about that. Uh, and they told you that up front. Uh, Star Wars, you had to go over the outline and get it approved and that was a lot harder because i have a lot of difficulty especially uh, i write a lot of action adventure um i have a lot of difficulty doing these large um action scenes and sequences of action scenes of figuring out what those are going to look like from the character's perspective unless i'm actually writing them and i don't think of all the little factors and the, all the little logistics when i'm trying to do an outline you know, and so it's like my outline is often very unhelpful because it will be like, okay, this happens. And by the time I get there, I'm like, that can't happen. That's dumb. That won't work. So I can't really see. And I'm kind of, and also even really basic things. I'm looking at the outline going, well, now I've got my main character away from the center of what's going on for this scene. And that's why I can't write it because again, that's not going to work. The main characters have to be, you know, where things are happening. Uh, this scene can't be basically it's like this is not, this is a private scene for the characters off stage and it's like they need to be on stage where one can see it. Um, so things like that. So I never plot out too much in advance. I'll do figure out things like um, 
usually I get the character voice first. That's the most important thing for me. I get the character voice and what they're going to sound like, whether, you know, usually it's in third person, Murderpod is in first person, which is kind of different for me. And then figure out where that person, what's going on and where that person is going. And usually I'll have like a midpoint that I'll be working. Once I get started in like the first chapter or so, you know, I know this character is going to be working toward this point. Once I get to that point, um, the next point becomes a lot more easy to figure out and where they're going to go from there and then to the ending. And usually I have a vague idea of where they want them to end up. Um, what I want them to accomplish by the end of the book. And that's what I work with. And um, which does mean uh, I end up doing a lot of revision because when you're doing that, it's really, it's really easy to write yourself into little cul-de-sacs and realize, no, this is, um, this is not right <laughs> to back out and start again. But I actually like revision better than writing first draft. So this works for me. And uh, a lot of people will say, just finish the first draft and don't go back. But when I change my mind about stuff and add, add things and take things out and realize, okay, maybe with the thing I'm working on now, I just realized I, you know, I needed to add a couple of minor characters to make things work. I have to go back and do that because the way I go, I need to have everything kind of straight in my head as I'm going forward or, you know, it's like the, the car engine won't go basically. So that's the way I do it. My process has not changed too much over time. It's gotten easier for me. And that's kind of a thing. Um, when you first start writing, you often you can put sentences on paper, but they're not quite the sentences you want. You're trying to make, you're making the words go together, but they're not saying really what your brain is saying. You're not really getting your vis, your, I, very visual writer so I'm not getting my vision on the page but it's like it's making a story so <laughs> that must be good and as you the more as you work on it and the more experienced you get you there starts to be much less of a gap between what you see in your head and what's on the page mm -hmm. until the point where you're not really noticing any gap at all so I've had that progression um I think I write a little bit faster now um or I did up until the pandemic started and then it was just so stressful. I, um, a lot of people talk about not being able to write and not being able to read even, not even having that concentration that they needed like TV or being online or something to just distract their brain because it was just eating itself. And I was kind of in that position. So for like six months of the year, the first six months from about March to about July, I didn't write anything. Um, I kept trying to, I was trying to start a new Murderbot story and it was just not happening. It was just like, um, Murderbot is very difficult to write just because of the logistics of its point of view. The fact that it can see all these different systems and, um, um, and the drones and all that. So it makes its action scenes and what's going on. You have to take that into account all the time, which makes everything a lot more complicated. And also the fact that it's an emotional murder bots progressing through an emotional minefield, basically. So you have to kind of think a lot about that as it's going along. Um, All systems red did come together very quickly. I got the idea. It was originally an idea for kind of a sad short story. And as soon as I was done writing the novel, I was working at the time I started it and wrote it in a month. Um, wow. It's about, it's only, it's a novella. So it's about 
33,000 words. Novellas have to be under 40,000 words. Um, so uh, that was, I thought, well, these others will be easy too, because the publisher, originally it was just going to be the one. The publisher asked for a second novella when it, when it, when Tor.com bought All Systems Red, they asked for a second one. It could have been something different, but I thought, well, I really want to write a sequel now. I really like this character. And um, wrote Artificial Condition, and it took me three months. And there was a lot of writing 10,000 words, 20,000 words, and then going and taking it all out and starting again. Like in, for one example, in Artificial Condition, art was not even a character in Artificial Condition at first, which sounds nuts. It does. <laughs> but um, it was just like there was a paragraph. I realized Murderbot needed to change its appearance a little bit so to realistically defeat the scanners and things that would be looking for it or maybe specifically or looking for a second unit or something. So it needed to change its appearance a little bit. And it's like, well, you could do this in a medical thing and maybe a friendly transport, you know, did this for it. And that was a paragraph I'm looking at that going, that's kind of a big deal. That really needs to be on stage. It can't just be, you know, um, tossed off like that. So I restarted it and started the story earlier, right after Murderbot had left um, this, the, the company state or the, the station where the company uh, outlet was. And as soon as, it got to the point where it met art and art started to talk. It was like, this character is so great. And the relationship between them, sometimes you don't really know what, how two characters you have in mind are going to work together until you start writing conversations between them. And sometimes it just takes off and it's just, there you've got a whole new main character. Um, and so then I ended up finished artificial, condi artificial condition and looking at getting in, you know, the publisher wanted more, um, or they, I think at that point they just wanted, I, um, they were very open to more novellas from me. I don't think anybody knew at that point Murderbot was going to super take off. So I wanted to write two more and kind of have that sequence. I had a, a scene in mind where Murderbot would come back and, and help Dr. Mensa for some reason. And so that started Rogue Protocol and Exit Strategy. And then Network Effect was basically me really wanting to get art back in the story but not, but and then I finally thought of a way to do that, and that's where network network effect came from. Okay, um, so we're 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 gonna deep dive uh, now into into the Murderbot Diaries. Um, so I know you're probably tired of hearing the "What's the inspiration behind Murderbot?" question. Uh, I know we talked a little bit off camera about that, but why do you think people relate to Murderbot so well? I mean, do you think it has is does some up to do with like this global pandemic where everybody's at home and it's kind of just like trying to zone everything out or, you know, do you think there's really something where people just kind of like to have their own, just be alone and just watch TV? <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, it actually took off before the pandemic. I think it took off. All Systems Red came out in, well, I think, May of 2017, and it, it took off pretty much immediately. Yeah. Um, and part of that is just right publisher, right time, um, right title, that kind of thing. Uh, the luck part, basically. Um, but also, Murderbot is really specific about its emotions, which makes it easier for different people to identify with. Uh, a lot of the things it talks about comes from my anxiety and depression and my experience, my personal experiences um, and people, you know, who have different 
issues they're dealing with find commonality in that. I also think the fact that Murderbot is vulnerable as a person, but it's also able to defend itself and defend its friends. And I think that appeals to people. It's, it's, um, people talk about it as a comfort read about feeling like Murderbot is a safe character to be with, which is <laughs> funny considering its name. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would be astonished by that, but, um, but it is, um, a lot of people talk about it as a comfort re reading them again as a comfort read, which I find, uh, I really appreciate hearing that because that was something for me when I was growing up is really being into books or TV shows as that comfort, as that kind of self-soothing, um, thing, um, especially back especially when i was getting started i think in the 90s it was it was okay to say that you were that books had saved you you know from um, whatever your trauma was whatever emotional or physical or whatever that that having that comfort but having saying that tv shows or media did was kind of like not oh no we had, that must be it's all superficial it doesn't you know it doesn't affect anybody and it's like which is patently ridiculous again um People, you know, and again, now we're especially we're seeing with gaming, the way gaming has changed and become more immersive and the storytelling is so incredible and, and everything. And that has become, I think, a lot of solace for people, too. Um, so, again, part of Murderbot's um, attraction to um, the media and stuff that it watches, it's again that it again, it's. It's been talked about quite a bit now that uh, shows can give you context for your emotions if you're kind of in a um, in a state of the way murder body is. I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but the, being able to see people reacting to different things kind of teaches you the way to react. Um, and that's what Murderbot's getting from its shows. Also, it's just the fact that it's comfort, that it's it's companionship. It's undemanding companionship where it can um, have the company of these imaginary, this fictional characters without having to interact with them in a way that it absolutely does not want to do. Um, that, that would actually traumatize it if it had to interact with people. So, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, coming from Murderbot's perspective, uh, you know, I, I can feel going out in public and just going, gosh, I have to deal with these stupid people. <laughs> and I was like, I just want to be left alone. I don't want to deal with this today kind of thing. And I, I feel like that's a part of it, too, because, you know, we all we all work day jobs where, you know, we have those couple of coworkers that were just like, gosh, if you just it, just not today, not today. Yeah. You just, you know, and, and, I, and I feel like that. I've been going back this week and, and listening to it. And, and by the way, Kevin R. Free is like Murderbot to me. I, every time I listen to his narration, I'm like, all right, he's Murderbot yeah. and nobody else can be. Um, and I'm just going, gosh, I, there are so many things that I feel that I just share with Murderbot. Just going, I just, I can't, I can't with humans today. Just give me my cereals or, you know, with me, just like, just give me a book to read and just let me just tune the rest of the world out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. When I was, uh, before I went to college and during early, early college, I was almost like, I was wondering if I was agoraphobic because I just was, had so many anxiety problems about meeting new people and, and 
uh, college kind of shocked me out of it. I got used to it after pretty quickly, but um, I took a lot of that, those memories and emotions and stuff and put them in the murder bot too. So yeah, I had to work at um, a theater <laughs> for a while doing theater concessions and usher and stuff. And it's like, yeah, you, um, um, uh, anything in customer service, you get um, uh, <laughs> issues with people really quickly. Oh yeah. Yeah. I worked, I worked in it as well. Uh, and just, you know, the, the, the people just that call in with their issues, it's like, have you, have you tried the civil to, you know, it's that whole, like, is the TV plugged in, you know, that, that whole <laughs> yes. kind of deal. And you just go, how many times do I tell this one person, you know, it, at least five, you would think they'd get it at that point, but yeah, it's, it's nuts. Um, so uh, we're getting this question a couple of times and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ask it uh, and, and we'll kind of go back into more of it uh, afterwards, but are there any plans for any like media tie-ins with Murderbot? Do you have any like ideas for a TV show or like graphic novel tie-in or anything like that? Cause I, I have to imagine people would just eat it up. So um, there's been no interest in graphic novel. It wouldn't be something I would do. Um, somebody, some other publisher would have to approach me. Um, we have sold dramatic rights for Murderbot, but um, right now it's still in the early planning stage. So, you know, there's no idea yet if, a, if you know, a streaming service or whatever will actually want to show it or buy it or have it made or anything like that. So, but that's not something authors usually do except under like, uh, you know, some conditions like uh, James S.A. Corey is rights for actually for the Expanse TV show and that kind of thing. But usually the author, it's like you sell dramatic rights and then, then the production company takes over. That's why why often so often the show is different from, you know, the book or the story, mm -hmm. because it's again, it's different people interpreting. It's kind of like fan fiction, except you get to see it on the screen. <laughs> it's a different version of, you know, the um, the book. So. Um, yeah, and we won't get into we won't get into the last season of Game of Thrones here. No. <laughs> <laughs> you ask yourself, but why? Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I don't know what's going to happen with that yet. Um, and I'm, when it does, it, it'll be announced and everything. But um, that's where it is right now. It's just very. It's really kind of too early to talk too much about it. Um, well, I am writing, I'm going to do, what I'm writing right now is a fantasy novel, which I started, it, it's my pandemic fantasy novel that I started in July. Um, that's going to be coming out next. Um, I am going to write uh, at least one more Murderbot novel and two more novellas. And I'll start working on that um, after I finish the fantasy novel. Um, and I'm probably going to take up where I, I tried to, I, where I left off, where I tried to take up last, uh, last uh, March <laughs> when everything happened um, and start working on that again. But again, they take a lot of concentration and I just didn't have any. <laughs> and I think a lot of people were in that state with their, with their work, either creative work or, or whatever else you were doing, where you were just like, you know, this is, <laughs> this is terrible. I can't think. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we all felt it last year. Um, I mean, I did, I did a little virtual convention called Mayday Con just to like kind of get out of the norm last year. 
Um, and then I did a, I did another virtual convention in January called TBR con. And it's just like to try to break it up because, you know, I can read one day and then the next day, like I just have everything running through my head and just yeah. nothing works. Um, and you know, we go through, you know, us as readers, we go through dry spells. We go through where like just no book can satisfy what we want. And honestly, I've gotten to the point where TV shows just don't really do it for me anymore because I don't feel like there's a whole lot of like originality out there anymore. <laughs> Everything's just like a rehash or, Hey, let's do another, you know, whatever movie that's that we've done 10 or 15 times before. Like there's a new space jam coming out. I'm like, can we not just left it as one, just one. But yeah, I, I, I think I know a lot of writers felt the same way that you did. Um, some may still feel that kind of way uh, just with, there's still uncertainty, in this, you know, this year was, oh, yeah. you know, cases are kind of back up on the rise and who, who knows. It, People don't want to get vaccinated and mm -hmm. that kind of thing, which is just yeah. so. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so for somebody who's not familiar with the Murderbot Diaries, and I don't know why they wouldn't be, but how would you describe the series? It's far future science fiction um, about a construct uh, which is a part human or part part human tissue, part uh, mechanical um, artificial intelligence uh, in human form uh, that has been basically created by this by these companies to be um, security units or comfort units. And this one is a security unit, and they're enslaved, and uh, they have a governor module in their head that control everything they do to make sure they follow orders and punishes them if they don't. And they're tied into these other systems, the security systems and hub systems. And they're usually rented out to like do security at things like mining colonies. And this one has been rented out to us. Well, it's, it actually hacked its governor module. So it's free. And the expectation in this world is that if a sec unit does this, it'll be a rogue and it'll run around and shoot everybody just like on TV kind of thing. And this one, um, has no idea what it wants to do. It's downloading uh, all the media and everything it can now get to because the, of the hacked governor module. And it's just kind of <laughs> watching shows and, and continuing to do its job with no idea what it should do with its, with if it should escape or not, it doesn't know what to do. Uh, it gets uh, rented out to a small group of scientists who are researching this planet. And uh, it actually starts to like them. And then it gets into a position where it has to reveal that it's hacked its governor module in order to save their lives. And that's the first, the first novella and the others all follow on from that. Okay. Um, so I'll ask you a few more questions about just kind of the storyline, but we, you, you touched a little bit on art uh, and, and I feel like art's like just one of the best things out there. I mean, outside of Murderbot itself, but uh, <laughs> what was it like writing that relationship and then being able to kind of come back to it? Uh, in your full-length novel? It was really, it, it's like when you're a writer and you have two characters suddenly start doing unexpected things and building a relationship unexpectedly. It's really cool. Um, that's kind of the best part when you kind of stumble on, you know, the heart of the story when you didn't know that's what it was. Um, uh, so just kind of building those characters. It's, it's just like they, it was just so much fun to write. Um, and thinking about what a um, an AI is, because art is just completely AI. It doesn't have any any uh, human tissue. So what uh, being like that would be like, and and um, 
how it would how it would uh, operate and everything. That's that's the kind of the fun. Those are the fun logistics to work out. Um, getting them back together with network effect um, was even more fun because I thought you know I didn't when I started network. Of, I'm trying not to be too spoilery. When I started it, I didn't really know that they were gonna make Murderbot 2.0 and all the other stuff they did. I just kept coming up with things. It's like yeah, they could do this. Um, so that was it. it, it I, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just a lot of fun to write. I was saying, uh, you know, an artificial condition when they kind of first meet that whole like internal conversation they're having with one another about TV shows and stuff. And then how like art just like couldn't even after a couple of episodes, <laughs> you know, it, it just, it, 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 it killed me. I, I love, I love reading that section uh, of artificial He's condition. Ident overly identifying with the, with the characters in the ship. Yeah. <laughs> People who haven't haven't read it, it's Arts of Starship. And uh when Murderbot wanted to watch a show, it wanted, only wanted to watch shows about people in ships. Yeah. <laughs> so and got upset um, when anything happened to the ships or the people in the ships. Exactly, exactly. Especially like I think it was like three episodes in and it just kept killing people off and just like <laughs> and it just like turned its you know, turned its face away. Yeah. Um so uh speaking of the serials, like where did you come up with like world hoppers and the rise and fall of sanctuary moon? Are they, are they kind of loosely based on shows that we have? Yeah, because it makes it easy. It's, it helps you kind of keep track of, you don't want to write an entire different storyline for your story, but so it helps me keep track of um, what would be happening in each show as they're watching it to kind of, and they're, they're not exact copies. Um, um, they're kind of loosely based on world hoppers is kind of a science fictional adventure thing like, like Stargate or Stargate Atlantis. Um, though it's the people are doing different, doing com something completely different that matches more the universe that, that um, art and Murderbot are in. There's one that's um, uh, Murderbot's favorite, the rise and fall sanctuary moon is basically like how to get away with murder type of show where there's a lot of intrigue and, and, deception and sort of soap opera stuff mixed in with mysteries and everything and um but taking place on a space colony um and um there's another one god now i can't remember the name of that something like orion orion defenders or time stream orion or something that's based on uh, legends of tomorrow where it's just absolutely gonzo adventure you know, as, as absolutely far out as you can make it. Uh, that, that, that's, that's the one that art and Murderbot start watching at the end of, of network effect. <laughs> um, okay. So tell me, tell me what we can expect in fugitive telemetry. Fugitive telemetry is actually set between exit strategy and network effect. And there was a scene in network effect where Murderbot was showing another character, kind of a video clip of when, there was a it, it stopped an assassination attempt on Dr. Mensa, and in the it had you can tell it has kind of a good relationship with station security. And I was just kind of thinking, how did that relationship develop, and what was it like for Murderbot first being on Preservation Station in ex, when at the end of Exit Strategy? And so I kind of wanted to go back and show that. And then I really like murder mysteries, so I wanted to do just a murder mystery set on Preservation Station, where. Murderbot has to work with station security for the first time and they're not thrilled with it and it is not thrilled with them and they have to kind of learn to work together. And so that's what fugitive telemetry is. 
Okay. Um, and I know that Tor.com posted the other day uh, a short story that was, I think, came along with Network Effect when it came out, but it's uh, home, habitat, range, niche, territory. Um, is it necessary to read that prior to fugitive telemetry? You don't have to. Um, it's Dr. Mensa's, uh, from, it's do from Dr. Mensa's viewpoint, and it's basically her kind of dealing with the fact of her, her, PTSD over being kidnapped and what happened. And so it's just her, her kind of thinking about that as, you know, she goes through the day. So it, I think it adds to, it's nice to see Murderbot from an, her viewpoint and it kind of adds, it fleshes out uh, what's going on a little bit more, but it's not, there's no plot things in it that will confuse you, you know, if you don't read it. Okay. Uh, I've got one more question for the audience. Uh, Agency seems to be a running theme for Murderbot. Why is it such an important topic for you to approach in the series? Uh, well, it's something that's been important to me for a long time. Um, and just in my life and seeing, being pushed to do things I didn't want to do and seeing people pushed to do things they didn't want to do and not treated like people. Um, I grew up in the 70s. Uh, there was a lot of that. <laughs> Um, probably, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's always been really bad. And, uh, I think in some ways, um, I don't know, it's hard to say what's, what's bad or worse right now with all everything going on. But, um, I answered this question for a blog post on something the other day, and I was really thinking about how, um, being a woman at that time or being a young woman, there was so much, um, I mean, you, no, you really weren't treated as a person and you kind of had to know that you weren't as much of a person as like, you know, your male friend, your father, your brother, whatever. And just the way, um, well, one example is stalking wasn't really a crime back then. You know, it was sort of like, it was your fault if you were stalked. And I was, when I was in college, it's like every, every girl I knew was being stalked and it just, you just felt so helpless. And the fact that um, someone could come in and just kind of say, well, you know, um, I'm in love with you. Now you belong to me now do what I say, or I'll kill you. And most people thought, well, okay, they, but he loved you <laughs> or they love right. you. And <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it was, um, it probably comes from that, uh, uh, and just having like living in the world and seeing the terrible things that happen to people, the racism and, um, you know, homophobia, queerphobia, the sexism, everything that we're seeing, the, you know, just over the years, um, yeah, that's what it comes from. I gotcha. Um, so as far as your collection of books, your, your library that you've written, um, where would you say would be the best place to start? It, do you have like a favorite series? I mean, would you say Murderbot? You got to start with Murderbot or would you like you know, people to read maybe some of your earlier works? Uh, I know I've seen a lot about Death for Necromancer. Um, I think I actually grabbed it the other day, but I've, I've, I've seen kind of in the chats, people were like, oh, it changed my life. It's the greatest thing ever. So would you, would you say start there? Would you say read Murderbot and then if you enjoy it, read some of my earlier stuff or is it just, it's all different. So just pick one. <laughs> it's all different. 
Uh, it depends on what you like. If you really like kind of a, a fantasy with a it's secondary world fantasy, but it has a historical feel to it, Death of the Necromancer. If you like um, secondary world fantasy that's kind of like far out and more like um, sword and planet kind of thing, um, definitely the Cloud Roads. It doesn't have any human characters. They're um, all uh, different sorts of, uh, I guess you would call them alien, non-human characters. Uh, the main characters, a shapeshifter um in a, a colony of shapeshifters and there's a lot of um sort of cultural negotiation going on um so the cloud roads is the first book in that series along with the action adventure <laughs> um and mysteries and that sort of thing um then there's if you like science fiction particularly far future science fiction all systems red is the best place to start with Murderbot. Um, or if you like tie-ins, I've got Stargate Last tie-in. I have a Star Wars novel. I also did some um, some of the magic story for Magic the Gathering for Return to Dominaria, which was a lot of fun um, to work with them on that. Um, so there's lots of places to start. <laughs> and then you've got a new fantasy novel coming out. So I got a new fantasy novel that's a completely different um, different world and everything. So is it gonna be a standalone, or are you gonna do a series? I'll know when I get to the end. <laughs> um, I know it's such a great question to ask when, you know, when it's not finished yet. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think that it might be, I, at this point, I don't know. I might get to the end and go like, I don't want to ever do that again. Yeah. Um, so who knows at this point, but I think I might have, I might do some more in it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, last question I got for you. Uh, is there, is there a book here recently or books here recently that you've read or maybe something you've read in the past couple of years that you believe needs more readership or something that you're like, everybody's got to read this book this year, et cetera. I haven't read a ton of stuff this year again because of the pandemic brain. I did read um, RF Kuang's um, it's the burning God. That was the third book in her um, um uh, trilogy that started with the poppy war that was really good it's very grim though it's very um uh, uh kind of grim dark fantasy but it's really good um i loved um the empress of salt and fortune which is a novelette by nevo um that was fabulous and it's it's a novelette but it's really like an epic fantasy you know told in a really unique way in that really gives you the feel that you've read a complete epic fantasy. It's just absolutely great. Um, Remote Control, Control by Nettie Okorafor is uh, science fiction. Um, I love, I've loved all her books I've read so far. I think my favorite though is like the fantasy uh, Akata Warrior. Um, that was my favorite. Um, let's see. I'm reading A Desolation Called Peace by Arcady Martin. That's a great book. Uh, That's the sequel to uh, Memory Called Empire. Um, really great far future science fiction. Um, oh, and C.L. Polk did the third book in their trilogy. Uh, I think it was uh, Soul Star, I think. But it's that Sounds one. All right. Yeah. Um, um, that was, I, I, each book I liked, I thought I liked the first one best. And then the second one came out and I liked it best. And now this one came out. No, this one is my favorite. Um, <laughs> so, and, um, gosh, I, I, that's about all I've read so far. I haven't, I usually read, I try to read on Goodreads. I try to get hit between 50 and 60 books per year. 
and I'm not even gonna, I don't know, 20 or something. It's just like so, and it's like, it's not that they, the books aren't great. I mean, there's still such, there's so many good books coming out lately. People have called it the new golden age of science fiction because it's like people are kind of busting conventions and busting genre and doing all this really cool stuff. And um, it's just, there's so much good to read. Um, I wish my brain would cooperate so I could, so I could read more of it. Yeah, I know. I wish there were like more hours in the day and like my eyes could just stay open because I feel like every time I'm like, okay, I've, I've got these five that I'm going to read. And like the next day, five more come in. It's just like, oh, I don't, I can't. <laughs> I wish I could read faster. I wish I, you know, I could just be like Murderbot and just all hit me in the head and be, and be done, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I, I love the, the novella format, um, especially especially with, with this whole pandemic and just not being able to concentrate for long periods of time. I mean, you can just devote hour, two hours to, you know, 120, 160 pages uh, and you get pretty much a full length story uh, that yeah. you would get in a three or 400 page, you know, fantasy or science fiction novel. Um, and because, you know, a lot of them are, are very open and closed. Some of them have, you know, a little bit of a cliffhanger for, for a sequel. Uh, but it's something that you can just pick up spend a lunch hour doing it and you're like i read a book today <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and you they really um it's an a, it's a a quick way to kind of find a new author especially if they've gotten other novels and their stuff out there before without making a huge time commitment mm -hmm. and you read the novella and go oh i'm gonna go buy everything this person wrote and then you're like oh but that's just this novella <laughs> exactly and you know if you're strapped for for money or thing you know the kindle uh Prices are usually about three ninety nine a piece. Sometimes they're a little bit cheaper for 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 novellas. I mean, that's definitely something to look into. And then if, I think Tor.com still got their flash fiction. They do short stories, um, yeah, so it's definitely a place to check out there. The short story. So. I think you can buy the short stories, but they're also they're just free on the website. I guess it depends yeah. on how you like to if you want to read them on your laptop or or your phone or whatever. Yeah, I think they're like ninety nine cents a piece yeah. uh, on Amazon, so, or and they probably are on. Uh, nook as well i haven't i, I just do kindle so yeah, <laughs> but uh website <laughs> okay yeah yeah or you can do that <laughs> i like changing my format I, I have to have it i have to have it pretty big I, my, my, my eyes don't adjust sometimes do what i said some people have to make the text bigger too so. yeah exactly <laughs> well martha um i really appreciate you taking the time this morning to to come and chat with me um Murderbot Diaries is is just absolutely phenomenal. I know a lot of people that have have tuned in would say this same as that thing. So thank you so much for continuing to write uh, and not, you know, just stopping and <laughs> and, and changing your mind on career path. Um, and everybody, uh, Fugitive Telemetry comes out next week on the twenty seventh. So make sure to go check it out. And if you haven't checked any of her series out yet, All Systems Red is widely available. So definitely go pick it up. Um, and Martha, just thank you again. And we'll have to do this again sometime um, and just continue doing what you're doing. We're, we're looking forward to more Murderbot and especially your fantasy series that's coming out. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. It was great talking to you. Absolutely. You as well. You have a great rest of your week and great weekend. Well, you too.